are listening to the podcast edition of One Love, One Planet. It is now time for One Love, One Planet with me, Penny Southgate, for the next hour. And I am very pleased to say that we are joined today uh, by Caleb Parkin. Good morning, Caleb. Good morning. Um, so, where do we start? Okay, can we, let's start with you as the city poet. Sure. How has that been? How's, what have you been, what do you do as city poet? <laughs> um, yeah, may you live in interesting times, um, and, and indeed we have been. So as city poet, you've got a set number of kind of formal commissions uh, that come through Bristol Ideas, that's the Festival of Ideas, uh, and the Mayor's Office, um, and they kind of talk about what's coming up in the cultural calendar. Uh, so there's, there's going to be about 12 formal commissions, which will then be published in an anthology of that work uh, later this year. And obviously it's been a strange time. So some of those have had mm. to reflect the time we've been living through, um, as well as upcoming events, a couple of which were then cancelled, but I'd written the poem. Uh, so that's how, you know, that's just how it's been. Um, so what have I done so far? I wrote one uh, to reflect on 2020 uh, for the State of the City Address. Um, for last year's State of the City Address, I wrote something about COP26, which was a kind of fable working with animals. It was a fubble, actually. It was a confused fable that I invented that form um, and various other things uh, as well. Do you find it, have you found it difficult to write poetry to order? Were you, were you feeling under any pressure? Yeah, I love that pressure. I think it's great. It's like a creative constraint to me. If you're given a brief and you know there's a client and sometimes that client might be like the people of Bristol or it's a bit of a, you know, it's a specific audience coming to that event. Um, I love finding a way to make that work um, and then thinking through that poem as a gift for those people. And then if you write with that in mind, it actually becomes really enjoyable to use all of the tools at your disposal to make it uh, something they'll, they'll appreciate as a gift. Yes, actually. And you just thought, I just want to take one step back, actually. When did you first start writing poetry? I started in my teens, um, as lots of people do. And I work with young people a lot these days. So it's really nice to kind of pay that forward and, you know, get young people writing. Um, I was very lucky. I had an English teacher who really encouraged me. And then, um, and actually kind of didn't think it could ever be a job, um, you know, and this is an interesting aspect of the arts, isn't it? And thought, okay, so I went off and did loads of other things, TV and radio, working in events, did some teaching, and then I've eventually kind of come back and made poetry my career and, and what I'm doing, which is great, because I love it. Yeah, fantastic. And, um, right, okay, so tell us about, where do we start? Where do we start? So much to talk about. You talk about, um, no, I was going to say, tell me about this fruiting body. I mean, I'm really interested in this this concept of queer eco poetry, but let's presume that will come up in the discussion about this fruiting body. For sure. So, so yeah, this fruiting body is my debut collection with Nine Arches Press, um, who I'm super happy to publish with. They're, they've been a real part of my development as a poet, and they write um, they publish lots of books that are about the writing process too. So they're great. And the book, um, yeah, I guess 
this idea of queering eco poetry or queer eco poetry, lots of people kind of go, huh? Yeah. Like, what is <laughs> yeah. that? But there's a kind of nascent, this emerging field of queer ecologies, um, which looks at the intersection of environmentalism and like queer literature and um, eco thinking and the intersection of all of those things and, and gender and sexualities and how it all kind of. Uh, meets and so lots of the work in the collection um, takes various approaches to that uh, and exploring our kinship with the more than human and um, being playful and camp and um, kind of embracing kind of pop culture and things like this so there's various ways that I would describe it as kind of queer in inverted commas even if that doesn't directly address gender and sexuality yeah okay is it and is it partly also about sort of breaking boundaries breaking through a very kind of really restricted way of seeing things. Yes, I think there's often unspoken norms and ways of thinking about eco-writing and eco-being and doing. Uh, and it's, um, it's framed in terms of like heteronormative kind of the future, um, you know, saving the world for my sort of white Western children, inverted commas. Um, and actually to subvert that, I think, can be very helpful. So we can start to open up the environmental movement so it's genuinely inclusive. And from my perspective, that's partly about um, being a different kind of family. I mean, we refer to ourselves as a pack, as two men and two dogs. Um, <laughs> so we're not like a family. We like to be on the dog's terms to an extent. Um, because one of the things I say quite regularly is, we're saving the world on its own terms, not just on human terms. And I think if we can start to reframe the environmental movement uh, in that way, that would be helpful because I think always, I guess I was, I was listening to that story about the uh, Olympics. <laughs> and I think, I think things like that are really helpful because for some people that's going, to be a, that's going to be what motivates them. So I think the more approaches we have on this, the better. But there's been quite a dominant norm in the way we talk mm. about environment, which is usually about that kind of, you know, saving the world for the humans, especially my own children. And I think that's not the only way we can think about it. Definitely. And I, I have to say, I mean, I've read... I think I've read almost all the poems in your book. It's wonderful. It really is. It looks like a slim volume, but what's it's like a TARDIS. It's fascinating because actually there is so it's so rich. There is so much in there and it's really liberating. I found reading it. It's really exhilarating. It's wonderful. Oh, good. I like liberating and exhilarating because yeah. so often and we were talking about this on WhatsApp, you know, with the kind of sense of actually environmentalism can feel quite foreclosed and a bit depressing and I think mm. there is good news you've done your good news this morning and of course there is and we need to keep working and collaborating and making the whole movement inclusive and imagining different futures I think often we're stuck in grief mm. and we're stuck in a particular like oh it's all awful and we're headed in one direction and it's like no we're not it's very much open I think I think the the opposite of hopelessness is often uncertainty rather than anything mm. uh, mm. hope actually being uncertain yeah know? absolutely absolutely and um i have this this thing that greta thunberg said once you start to act hope is everywhere so yeah we, we're uncertain but at least you know that's where hope resides when people start to act it's, absolutely it's, and thinking about your circles of influence and imagining mm -hmm. you know imagining what your different future might be like and some of your news stories too talked of the co-benefits of thinking ecologically and that actually you know our buildings would be green and we appreciate mm -hmm. being around green you know and all of all of this kind of thing and actually like more active travel and good public transport these are all good things for people because people are part of the planet you know we evolved here and this is we, we're a part of this great big messy 
spaceship so we need to you know the more we do to take care of that spaceship the more we um hopefully in a socially just and inclusive way can feel more at home and and happy here which leads us on i think let's can we hear one of your poems can we hear you recite one of your poems yeah this is a, a poem that works i suppose with one gendered idea which is of mother earth um, which gets bandied around a great deal, or Earth Mother and all of these terms. And I thought, okay, I'm going to really apply that close to home. And my mum's been through a couple of bouts of illness, and she's doing brilliantly now. Um, and um, so the poem, I hope, speaks to something of the challenges, but also the resilience of our spaceship. If the Earth is my mother, then the Earth yodels in car parks and stairwells, She tells endless tales over morning tea leaves while she gossips in customary understories. If the earth is my mother, she's a composer of gin and free-poured song, a knitter of waste wool, a forager of material, a seamstress of the surplus. The earth is a feeder, baker of suet islands on bubbling oceans of stew, cook for several hundred million imagined diners, a wearer of outlandish wigs. When Earth doesn't call, that's the worry. She gives too much away in her silences. If the Earth is my mother, she's had ivies and pipelines fitted right to her heart. Earth has evolved, changed landscape. She finds it hard to rest, even after a long and chemical winter, a malignant aftermath. She knows her own and her neighbours' maladies, her own and others' offspring. Earth will mother you all if you'll let her, or even if you won't. If the Earth is any kind of step, in-law, drag, foster, second, adoptive, convoluted, maddening mother to you, then it's time you called her, right now, so she can let you know it's serious. Yeah, it's really powerful. Still gets me a bit reading that. Yeah. Which I think is a good sign. Like when you read a piece and you're like, oh, still got some emotional weight to it, I think. It's pretty huge, (laughs) that poem. Mm. It's, 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 yeah, it's it's brilliant. Really, really good. And I wonder, like, there's Um, something about getting to the hugeness through our personal, through intimacy, actually. I think intimacy is so important with environment. Yeah, very much so. And I was talking to um, to Sarah Robertson, who is an academic who um, teaches literature at UWE, last week about the power of literature to help us navigate the whole problem that we find ourselves in. And it's really interesting now coming to poetry, which feels in a way it's even deeper because it's even more subconscious yeah and the ability that you have to kind of evoke and express things that we can't quite articulate that's what I love about poetry I mean I said to you that I I still have this sort of kind of leftover fear from school of oh I'm not going to understand this poem and I'm not going to get it and um but I love when I don't get it yeah yeah, well you see you would you would but I still yes I still then people go oh god yes it's all about oh I didn't get that at all um but but you're right it doesn't matter because it's just a personal response isn't it 
I, th- I don't think you need to get it. And I think sometimes mm. that kind of over-analytical... I mean, when, when you're a poet, then you love geeking out about it and you can really get into the... Under the bonnet, as one of my tutors said, you know, under the bonnet of the poem, and that's great. But you, d- you don't want to kind of lose the magic. And what I found interesting lately is, is being reviewed, having some reviews of the book, and people have said, oh, when he's done this. And I was like, oh, oh I did, didn't I? I didn't realise that. You know, because it's, it's so complex and, and there is the unconscious at work and the, the nuances of language... That I think as long as you experience something, it doesn't. You don't have to understand it. You can just be really drawn to a poem and be like, "What? What is it? What's going?" Like a painting, you know. We, yeah. we don't apply the same yeah. stuff to paintings as poems, uh, and and nor should we. But actually, sometimes just appreciating the poem for its colours and its mm. shapes is okay. Like I think it's good to do that too. Yeah. So if you if you find yourself reading. Uh, this this fruiting body, go out and get it. It is. It's it's wonderful. It's so rich, and you. I feel like you could read each poem again and again and again and see new things in it. Um, tell us about the launch, because that sounded fun. It was really fun. <laughs> and one of the things I think, um, again, we're, we're slightly lacking at times is like fun yeah. environmental and eco-thinking. And I think it's really important to make it sustainable on an emotional level, because otherwise we can get <laughs> caught in kind of you know, it's grief and upset and sadness and everything, you know. Um, but there's lots to be cheerful and joyous about and also one of the aspects of kind of queer eco stuff is this kind of existing nonetheless um which i think in queer culture exists a great deal um there's a writer called nicole seymour who endorsed the book whose ideas kind of really influenced me and she says you know there's lots of reasons in queer culture why the future might feel foreclosed whether that's kind of um not taking part in kind of the heteronormative family reproduction way of doing things um or whether it's uh, through through violence or through um, HIV AIDS or other reasons. Mm. Um, and actually queer people and queer culture exists nonetheless, often quite joyously, um, knowing that that darkness is there. And so I think there's something that maybe the environmental movement can also kind of learn from that. So, um, and there's other other writers like Annie Sprinkle and Beth Stevens. Do you know them? No. Okay, they're, they're super fun. And so they've just written a book called Assuming the Ecosexual Position, which is about ecosexuality, the earth as lover. Um, they're great fun. Look them up. So the eco-sex manifesto and everything. Anyway, I, so, can I just yeah. say, I've got, I've written down a quote <laughs> yeah. from your book, from the, from the, I think from the sleeve, a body aching from harm, but still devoted to pleasure. I love that. It's, that was Samantha Walton's, yeah, endorsement, which I thought was beautiful. Yeah. yeah. And mine, mine very kind of, it's like greet, Hallmark greeting card kind of, is, is that whole thing, don't wait for the storm to pass, but learn to dance in the rain. Yeah. I actually, I love that. It's yeah. just, it's brilliant. Because we, we can't. You can't wait until things are perfect before enjoying yourself. Can never thing. be perfect. No, exactly. Exactly. <laughs> and I was just thinking, I was thinking earlier when you were reading the news that we're always caught, you know, somewhere, we're somewhere between utopia and calamity. And, you know, and it's likely that the Winter Olympics will probably be held in a, like a fewer places, but not no places because mm. we are making a bit of progress. Um, but, you know, it's, we're not in a utopia. No, no. But t- just tell us about the launch show because that did yeah. sound fun. So I went off on one there. No, it's I? fine. Yeah, it's don't worry. Don't so the launch was, um, we had it on the, uh, f- the, which boat was it? It was the Flower of Bristol, appropriately enough. So a nice uh, botanical uh, boat. And we went out and we had readings from Samantha, who had endorsed the book, and from another Bristol writer called Jack Young. Um, so we went out and we had these readings, and then we had an, a silent eco disco. So all of the tracks, I had made playlists over some weeks or months, which I really enjoyed making, which had some element of the more than human. So super nature, and uh, we're going to hear maybe another track or two. Um, and it was great fun putting them together. And then... Um, 
yeah and there's a particularly lovely moment as we came back into the harbour but I'll maybe save that for when uh, we hear one of the tracks which you won't <laughs> expect to hear on, on BCFM but I think you'll enjoy it right well I tell you what do you want to read another poem oh should we do that yes yeah, okay, let's do why that. don't you read yeah and then then we can yeah this play is, the song this is timely because this poem is brilliantly um is oh yes of course it's the guardian poem of the week yes carol rumens was really yeah yeah which yeah, was a joy fantastic so yeah. it's one of my markers of being a proper poet is having guardian poem of the week so that's i can tick that off now absolutely um, so if you look it up uh, guardian poem of the week it was yesterday's wasn't it yesterday, yesterday's yeah, guardian so it's up yeah. now yeah um, and the title of the piece is from an information sign at the Horniman Museum in summer, summer 2019 when I visited. Uh, and it's, please do not touch the walrus or sit on the iceberg. So I clamber up on top of the fiberglass plinth, rise from the chevrons of the parquet floor as though it melted into thick cold waves. And I emerge, triumphant and substantial, hear my epic belly boom on the fake ice, hands slapping flatly on the hollow berg, relaunch my fingers as weighty webbed fins before I tackle his avuncular mass, high-five his suede and ample rump. Together, on our tiny island, I offer my new form to brisk expanses, the gritty battlegrounds of Arctic beaches, my chest proud and lifted as a dormant volcano. Then my incisors extend, telescopic, tusks prodding at my clavicle bones. Whiskers, these exhilarating bristles of whisker, tickle out from the prow of my titanic mass. We are in tandem, a double-breasted catamaran. We are Rose and Jack on our own luxury boat. And when staff approach with their lanyard spears, their hunter's walkie-talkies, to stare up at the hull of our little world, our Oscar-nominated forever, I'll look down through blubbering eyes and briny breathlessness, then whisper in impeccable walrus, I'm flying. too much time so but do you want do you want to do another poem caleb yeah that would, just, that would be that lovely right? yeah yeah absolutely there's, yeah. A, there's a connection here with the kind of non-human kinships which is something i talk about in various ways in the book okay uh, and in this case um i wrote a poem this was a city poet commission and i looked up the world's smallest tarantula which is the um, spruce fir moss spider and then i wrote uh, uh yeah so there's a quote from Rebecca Tamas in a book of essays she wrote called Stranger, which is love for things that are nothing like us and which may not love us back. Great, great grand spider, 2120. Microhexura motivaga is my adoptive great, great spruce fir moss grand spider. World's smallest tarantula, thriving still on rocky outcrops in South Appalachia, where she remains too busy for me or humanity. She'll never visit 22nd century compostable cities, messy green conglomerations of enmeshed species. Her territory is three metres squared and she does not care about any sustainably developed policy. Right now, she's gracefully enveloping a springtail half her own mass. 
She doesn't realise we inhaled our bloated CO2, learned to view mountains as our teachers. She doesn't give two shakes of her thorax that once you sent a passionate email to your MP, RE, that ancient tree, or buried seeds for future non-humanity. She is sole treasurer of her nation of moss, constructing a funnel eight millimetres wide to shelter from the now customary blizzards and rains. She jostles her spinnerets, tethers high tensile time from her abdomen to the undiscovered planet of her boulder. She is now, loamy water, tasted in mouthparts, the brisk prickle of snowmelt soaked through this understory, the scattering of prey away from her clustered eyes. She couldn't care less that every single vote was counted, mattered, because, look, here come those great-great-great-grand spiders, those great-great-great-great, add as many greats as you like, grand spiders, who'll thrive too, not caring if we were part of the reason she's here. Balanced like, but nothing like, a world-renowned acrobat, on the glittering white promise of her egg sac. It's, it's exquisite. It's wonderful. I do, it's, it's just the idea of this spider in a century's time, just kind of, you know, going about its business, totally yeah. uninterested in all that we did. Isn't that wonderful? Yeah, it's I brilliant. Love that idea. It's great. They're fabulous little spiders, those. Yeah. Smallest yeah. tarantulas in the world. And um, I hope anyone who's arachnophobic might now have a bit of a soft spot for spiders. There you go. Yeah, no, it's wonderful. I think we're going to have another one of your poems, please, Caleb. What's it called? Kind Words About Darkness. Kind Words About Darkness. Kind Words About Darkness. Into this living night we stride the few curving miles of hedge-meshed lanes, reliant at first on sight. But then, in the secret spectral cinema of purple, black, grey, 3am, away from the orange-juice deluge of streetlights, we attune to touch, become alert to the crunch or slop of each step, awake to each other, the low-headed stoop of the dog. There is space in this darkness, a brightness between us and the softly backlit branches. No traffic to face down, no public to display to, not a single tree jabs at us with censuring eyes, just us our hands meshing beneath this starlight. These hands, scattered otherwise, beneath the gazing windows of a city skyline. I have this, this was another thing, Caleb, your poetry reminded me of is I had this sudden vision of Bristol being like a woman who refuses to shave anymore and just <laughs> lets her hair grow wherever it will. Yeah. And Bristol's hair, all the green bits will just grow wherever they can. And we, so we lose the whole manicured... Mm. Wouldn't it be amazing? Yeah, I, well, yeah, fascinating. Sort of. and you, so, you know, like London has declared it is a national park now. 
This is a really interesting move, oh, and I it? think there's a move to get Bristol the declared a national park. So all those biodiversity Amazing. measures, which obviously involves having much more joined up green spaces mm. and, and spaces that are allowed to uh, do their own thing and go wild um, and hairy. Uh, yeah. Brilliant. So. Yeah. We are almost out of time. When I wanted to talk a bit about biophiliac design, you, you, I mentioned it earlier on, and I, saw, I sort of sensed this movement. You sounded like, yes, look, you're nodding. Do you want to say something about this? Yeah, what so... Is it, um, is it bio? There's another word, isn't there, like for bio-inspired design? There might well be. I can't remember what it is now. But biomorphic or like all of these yes, things. There's, yes. there's other terms as well. Um, yeah, like the environment and ecology has often solved problems that we're now... Um, because everything within our biosphere is in a closed system. So actually looking to some of those solutions makes absolute sense. Um, and again, I think if it involves more design being in forms and structures that we find pleasing, then again, that's a kind of co-benefit. Um, totally. Yeah, although, you know, my there's another bit of my brain that's like, some of the ways that the ecosystem solves problems are pretty brutal, so we don't want to do those. So, <laughs> yeah, uh, but, true. you know, on the other hand, I think there, there are lots of ways we can learn from what's already happening. Yeah, yeah, and there's um, there is the, the project I was going to talk about is called um, what's it called? It's called the Imagine Project. So I'm going to talk about this at some point. It's a community driven movement that is trying to get people, both in the industry of design and architecture, um, to think in biophiliac terms. So yes. yeah, it could be and nothing's nice. outside of this system. Yes, no, yeah. absolutely, absolutely. We really are almost out of time. Um, Caleb, thank you so much. You're very welcome. Thanks for having it's me. It's been really wonderful to and to hear you recite the poems. It's a real treat. Fantastic. Thank you very, very much. <laughs>